Hey everyone, you're tuned in to the Philippi Sermons Podcast. We're currently in a series through the book of Acts. If you want more information about our church, head over to philippichurchgp.com. There you can also find a link to our other Conversations podcast, where we interview people and have Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused conversations. Hey, may the Lord bless you and speak to you as you take in His Word. that I, I feel like just faces us as Christians every day. Maybe, maybe not you, but for sure me. Uh, and that reality is just the constant, the constant voice of accusation, the constant voice of condemnation uh, in my own mind as a Christian. Uh, we have many accusers as Christians. You may not realize this, but when you got saved, you were conscripted uh, into another kingdom. And in that kingdom is at war, at odds with the kingdom that you were conscripted out of. And because you were conscripted out of one kingdom into another kingdom, now you live behind enemy lines. You have a very real enemy that wants to see you destroyed. We have many accusers, first of which is our heavenly accuser. We have an accuser that day and night lives to accuse you. He accuses you before the Father. Revelations chapter, Revelation, not Revelations, Revelation chapter 12 Verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and authority is uh, authority of his Christ have come. Listen, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night. So you have someone that literally is accusing you constantly. Zechariah chapter three, the prophet Zechariah gets caught up into this vision and he sees the throne room of the Lord and it's like this court setting. And in the court setting, Zechariah sees Joshua, the high priest, clothed in filthy garments, and Satan is literally there accusing him, accusing him. We see that all throughout the Bible. Uh, Satan is the one who lies, steals, destroys. He lies um, in order to steal your faith, in order to kill your spiritual life, in order to destroy you eternally. That's his goal, okay? Now, not only do you have that accuser, you also have earthly accusers, we all have earthly accusers, people that would seek ill to us. You know, we've all heard the saying, sticks and stones don't break my bones. That's not true. <laughs> Words hurt. They do, and they stick, and they leave a mark. Uh, they just do. On top of that, we have many that would love to shipwreck our faith basically because they, they hate what we believe in. So we have earthly accusers. We have heavenly accusers. We also have ourselves as an accuser, don't we? <laughs> I don't know about you guys. That's like my number one accuser, myself. Reminding myself constantly of failings, reminding myself constantly of weaknesses, the constant running voice in your head. We also have, let's be honest, much to be accused of. Do we not? I mean, we're not all sort of these innocent people sitting, being mistried. We're people that are being accused probably of true things. And the enemy doesn't, he's not stupid, right? I mean, he doesn't just tell you things that you know aren't true. Most of the time, he tells you things about yourself that are true. Your failings, you know you've made. Sin that you know you have. Things that you know you've said. Things that you know you've done. He reminds you of these things. It's interesting in Zechariah, I just mentioned that, in this courtroom scene that Zechariah sees, Joshua, who's being accused, is wearing filthy garments as a symbol of the iniquity of Israel. So it's not like Satan is there making up stuff. He is filthy. We are 
filthy. We feel like failures oftentimes because we are. And so it's not hard for the enemy to convince us of something that we actually know is true. We know that we have sin. We know that we have failures. We know that we have struggles. The question for us this morning is how do we battle that? How do we battle accusation? How do we battle condemnation? Now, Paul knew something about this. He knew something about dealing with accusation for a few reasons. Number one, I can't think of anyone in the first century that had a larger target on his back than the Apostle Paul by the enemy. I mean, this guy is planting churches like crazy. The kingdom is manifested through this guy like crazy. You better believe the enemy wants to see this guy go down. He also had guilt that he carried around. This guy killed Christians. Do you realize that? Paul was a terrorist prior to his conversion. He killed Christians. Imagine carrying the burden of that. And you better believe the enemy would remind him of it. You better believe the enemy would remind him of the fact that he stood by while Stephen, one of the greatest evangelists of the first century, was murdered, probably at the command of Paul. He had enemies, didn't he? I mean, Paul had all kinds of enemies. Everywhere everywhere he went, he was accused, he was arrested, he was beat up, it was a constant. So if anyone has something to teach us this morning about how to deal with accusation, how to deal with condemnation, I think it's Paul. And I think our passage is the perfect passage to talk about it because in the passage, it's basically a courtroom setting. It's basically Paul sitting on trial. And as he's sitting on trial, Paul is asked to give his case, his defense for the accusations that are brought against him. So the passage outlines really nicely into three sections, and you'll see this on your outline. Uh, First of all, the accusation made against Paul in verses 1 through 9. We'll look at that. And then secondly, the rebuttal, verses 10 to 11, or pardon me, 10 to 21, and then the verdict, 22 through 27. Very courtroom, okay? There's an accusation, there's a rebuttal, there's a verdict, Now, let me get you back into where we're at in the story here. We've been teaching through the book of Acts since we planted the church about seven or eight months ago now. Uh, And essentially, we're getting towards the end of the book. We only have about four chapters left. And from this point forward, the material is all about Paul in courtrooms, basically, giving his testimony before different leaders. He's being passed from one leader to another, very similar to what happened to Jesus uh, at the end of his life. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem for doing nothing, as we'll see. He was arrested by the religious leaders for false, made-up accusations. Uh, He was arrested also to keep him from getting killed because he was literally getting beat up by a mob. He gets brought before the tribune, and the tribune is questioning him, and he can't quite figure out what's going on, so he brings the Sanhedrin, the 70 religious council members of Jerusalem, in to question Paul, and uh, they can't really figure it out either. It ends up just causing a big fight between the Sanhedrin. So the tribune has it. He says, enough of this. I'm going to send Paul uh, off to the next guy up in the chain of command. The next guy off in the chain of command was named Felix, okay? Felix was the procurator, the governor of Judea. Judea is southern Israel. So he would have been the Roman, that's really loud, he would have been the Roman person that basically governed and oversaw, similar to Pontius Pilate. It was the same office that Pontius Pilate held, if you're familiar with him. So Paul is now sent up to Felix, for his next trial. And that's where we punch into the story. So, Acts chapter 24 and verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some soldiers, with some elders, pardon me, and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. So here's what's happening. Paul is in Caesarea. Caesarea was sort of the Roman provincial capital of uh, Israel. He's in Caesarea, and 
Felix wants to put him on trial, so the, the accusers come down to make their case against Paul, and they hire a man named Tertullus. Tertullus was a professional speaker. He was a lawyer. He was a slick, uh, you know, orator who was basically paid to talk people into things. Okay, that's his job. So these religious people hire this guy to basically uh, try to make the case against Paul. Somehow, this thing went from being a fight from, of 40 men who wanted to see Paul dead to now it's the fight of the high priest. Ananias himself literally comes down to see Paul destroyed. You can see how much of an enemy they thought Paul was to the temple and its system. Verse two. So Tertullus, when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, now, listen to the flattery here. I mean, Tertullus really lays it on thick, right? Since through you we enjoy much peace, speaking to Felix, since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. What a load of horse hockey. I mean, he really lays it on thick. But to, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Okay, so that sounds from this guy Tertullus, Tertullus, this paid orator, sounds like Felix was a really a great governor, but he wasn't. He was a terrible governor. In fact, there's not a single thing in history recorded about him that was good. Everything he did in his five to six year term of governance in Judea was terrible. In fact, Tacitus, the first century uh, historian, he said, with savagery and lust, he exercised the powers of a king with the disposition of a slave. He's a terrible guy. In fact, he was a slave. He was uh, freed and then worked his way up the chain of command through knowing the right people. He stole his wife who, uh, from another king, from another country, uh, basically manipulated uh, a way to get her away. She was like 16 years old when he stole her away, Agrippa's daughter. She was a Jewess. Uh, so he's just a terrible guy, a terrible guy. And, and things actually were worse under his governance than any other governor. I mean, it was just terrible. Everything was worse under Felix. So this guy's, this Tertullus is really full of it. <laughs> he's, he's really full of it. He's just trying to, to kiss up to this guy in order to get him to hear the case. Now, here's where I want to get a little bit more into our subject matter. So Tertullus is going to accuse the Apostle Paul. He's going to condemn the Apostle Paul based on particular things. And I want you to take note of them if you have your handout. He's going to accuse Paul of three things. Okay? Three things. The first, and I'll just give all three of them to you now, and then we'll go through them. The first thing he's going to accuse Paul of is who he is. Who Paul is. Then he's going to accuse him of what Paul believes. And then he's going to accuse him of what Paul does or did. Who Paul is, what Paul believes, what Paul does. First, he accuses him of who Paul is, verse 5. For we have found this man, Paul, a plague and one who starts riots throughout the world. So here's the first accusation. The first accusation is just literally who Paul is. This guy is a problem. He's a plague. He literally needs to be amputated. This guy is a problem to all the world. He starts riots. Now, of course that's not true. Of course that's not true. But you know what Roman governors care about? Uprisings. Their job is to keep the peace and keep the taxes. That's their job. So if Tertullus wants to manipulate Felix into uh, getting rid of Paul, all he has to do is say that he's a public enemy. All he has to do is say that this guy starts riots, and Jews were famous for starting riots in history. 
They were famous for it. There was always some messianic person coming along saying, hey, follow me and we'll overthrow the government and restore Israel back to its former glory. It happened over and over again. In fact, if you remember a few chapters ago, they thought Paul was this guy from Egypt that did exactly that, that caused this big army to march against Jerusalem. So they know exactly how to manipulate Felix. Just tell him that he starts riots. But notice here that what Tertullus is attacking is Paul himself. It's Paul himself. Have you ever dealt with that in condemnation? Like, it's not just something you do, it's you. You, there's something wrong with you. Okay, he's attacking the very essence of who Paul is. And then skip down to verse eight, it gets worse. He says, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. In other words, hey, Felix, if you don't believe me, just look at the guy. He's so bad, if you just ask him a question, he'll condemn himself. Tertullus kind of puts on this fake confidence about the guilt of Paul. In other words, this guy is so terrible, anyone that really gets to know him is going to see he needs to go. So he attacks who Paul is. The second thing he attacks is what Paul believes. He takes a cheap shot at Christianity. Look at the second half of verse 5. It says, he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now that's a pretty pejorative description of who Paul is, what he believed in. Now let me break it down a little bit. First, he calls him a ringleader. Have you ever heard that in a good sense? Okay. He's somebody that, 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 that leads uh, problems. He's someone that stirs people up. Then he calls them a sect. Okay. A sect was basically um, denoting the idea that this was a cult branch of Judaism, a false branch of Judaism. Okay. That, 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 that would have basically been saying, hey, these guys are like a false religion. That's what this sect of the Nazarenes. But the most insulting part of this thing he calls Christianity is that he calls it the sect of the Nazarenes. Okay, you're thinking, well, why is that insulting? Well, Nazareth, okay, Nazareth was not the place anybody wanted to be from. Certainly wasn't the place anyone thought the Messiah would be from. It certainly wasn't the place anyone of greatness would come from. It was Hickville. It was an insult. It was an insult to say that he was from Nazareth. If you remember when they put Jesus on the cross, they said, uh, they, they, they literally said that he was from Nazareth. That was a joke. It was to insult him. So this idea that Jesus comes from this Hicktown place is insulting, and the, they don't even give him the decency of saying he's of the following of Jesus or the sect of Jesus. They don't even use his name. Okay, now this is a common ploy of the enemy when accusing you, is to make what you believe in feel stupid to make it feel disvalidated, to feel, make it feel like it's, like it's wrong. And by the way, just a side note, you ever notice that critics of Christianity always attack Christians, they never attack Jesus? <laughs> they know who to pick a fight with. <laughs> I mean, we got lots of things they could be critical about. Jesus, on the other hand, not so much. So the same thing is happening here. Tertullus is picking a fight with Christianity, insulting them, not with the person of Jesus and his work. Third thing he attacks is what Paul does what Paul does, or supposedly does. Verse six, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Now we know, if you were here last week, the week before, that wasn't true. Paul didn't profane the temple. In fact, as Paul will go on to explain, he was doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing. He went through ritual cleansings. He did not bring a Gentile into the holy place. If he had done that, he would have been killed, okay? So Paul didn't do anything wrong here, but the, the accusation here, the false accusation, is that he stirred up a riot. When in fact, Paul was just there minding his own business and a riot started to try to kill him because he had bad blood with these people from Ephesus, okay? And then verse nine, we have the sting of consensus. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So basically, as Tertullus is making the case, all the Jews and the high priest are back there like, that's right, that's right. Ooh, it hurts when everyone agrees, right? 
you're an idiot, you're an idiot. That's right, you're an idiot. Oh, man, everyone thinks I'm an idiot. Okay, Paul, I mean, like, Paul is like, man, everybody is, cons- is in consensus here about this. Okay, so that's the accusation. What I want to spend the majority of our time on is how Paul responds to this accusation, how Paul responds to the condemnation that's coming against him, and what we can learn about his response. So, we're going to look at three things, and this will be the bulk of the message. The three things that Paul responds with, uh, Paul models how to battle condemnation in three actionable steps. Okay, I want you to write all three down, and then we'll go back through them. Number one, he teaches us to refute what is false. I really want you guys to remember these, okay? That's why I want you to write them down, because I want you this week, as you're dealing with condemnation and accusation, I want you to pull these out, and I want you to work through them. First thing he does is refute what is false. The second thing he does is declare what is true. And the third thing that he does is confess what is wrong. Anybody got those? Refute what is false, declare what is true, confess what is wrong. So first, refute what is false. Looking at verse 10. When the governor had nodded to him, Paul, to speak, so it's his turn to speak now, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years, Felix, you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. I like that. Paul's respectful, but he's not flattery. He just says, hey, (laughs) you've been a governor for a while. Okay, not a good one, not a bad one. You've been a governor, so I'm going to make my defense. Verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Okay, so in other words, I haven't, Paul's like, I haven't had time to start a riot, okay? I, I've only been here a week. You can verify it. Go back to the temple records and you'll see. I, I just got here. And by the way, Paul never preached in the temple, okay? At least not since he's been back. Uh, his mission field has moved on. His mission field is to the Gentiles now. He came to Jerusalem in order to greet the church, bring a gift to the church from the Gentiles, and, and to go and, 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 and pay homage to the Lord through the still-in-place avenue of the temple. He's not there preaching. He's not causing riots. None of that's true. He said, they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. So I want you to notice, first, Paul's defense against the accusation is that he deals with what is not true. Okay, and that's the first thing you got to do. When you're feeling condemned, when you're feeling accused, you need to stop and you need to say what out of what am I feeling is actually valid and what is not. And I guarantee that most of what you're feeling is probably not valid. Most of what you're feeling is probably being imposed upon you by either someone else or by yourself. Now listen, we have enough sin of our own. We have enough stress of our own. We have enough struggles of our own that we don't need to go borrowing other things that we're not responsible for. Okay, uh, you guys know what guerrilla warfare is? It's sort of the behind the, the enemy lines warfare that takes place off the front. And the purpose of that is that, that you're trying to gum up the, um, the social construct of a, of, a, of a country behind enemy lines so that they have to pull resources from the enemy in to fix the problems in their own cities. You know, so, so basically it's pulling the enemy's attention away from where it should be to where it shouldn't be. And that's exactly what the enemy wants to do in your life. He, he wants your focus not to be on the front the battle, he wants your focus to be behind enemy lines on things that you haven't really done or shouldn't even really be thinking about or dealing with. I had a buddy once, uh, we go backpacking every year, and ultralight backpacking is a funny sport because every gram matters, right? 
Like you weigh everything. You're like, that's six ounces. Oh, it's too heavy, you know? It's just every, my wife laughs at me because I'm literally meticulously putting every little thing in my bag, like my toothbrush has to be light, only a little bit of toothpaste, a little bit of soap, or maybe just no soap at all. Um, so pff, you don't need it. Um, so I, you, know, you just get it as low as you can. Well, I went backpacking with my buddy Jeremy Neff. He's one of the elders here. And uh, while he wasn't looking, uh, actually, he was going on a trip. I wasn't going with him, which makes it even funnier. Uh, while he wasn't looking, I stuffed rocks and things, like everything I could find. I just stuffed it into his backpack. It was probably like 20 extra pounds, right? Uh, and then I just left it, you know? Now, he found it before he got on the trail. But the funny thing is, is that's exactly what the enemy's trying to do to you. I mean, you already have enough to carry, and he's trying to add more stuff to you that you were never actually supposed to be carrying in the first place. Now, listen to this. Somebody needs to hear this, okay? Um, anxiety and condemnation can be a symptom of an overinflated estimation of your own self-importance. An overestimation of your own self-importance. Maybe you think you're responsible for more things than you really are. A lot of us feel condemnation over things that we actually couldn't help. Maybe the way certain of our kids act or turned out. Maybe uh, the way that certain people act around you. That may not be something God is actually asking you to carry. Now, what did Jesus say? He said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Here's what he didn't say. You don't need to carry a yoke. You don't need to have a burden. It's not what he said. You have a yoke. You have a burden. But you need to have the right one. You need to have the right one. The one that he made for you. The one that was carved specifically for you. The one that was designed for you. We all are going to carry our load, but it needs to be the load that God has actually carried. So next time you feel accused, the first thing I want you to do is stop and ask yourself, is this Christ's yoke for me? Or is this a yoke someone else has made me? I, as a pastor, I have to do this all the time. Because one thing about ministry is nobody agrees on how you should do it. So there's always, hey, we should do it this way, we should do it that way, and that's fine, that's just the way it is. But I can take that and put it in my bag and go, oh, you're right, oh, you're right, I'm blowing it, oh, we should do that, oh, we should do this, and I'm like, all of a sudden I got really heavy. I have to stop and say, Jesus, what are you asking me to do? And what are you not asking me to do? And you need to have a humble understanding of your own self-unimportance, okay? We start to think we're too much and then we start to carry too much. Okay. Now, let me say this just as a by the way. There is a difference between caring about something and carrying something, okay? There's a difference between carrying, caring, and carrying. We can care about something that isn't our fault. We should care about things that aren't our fault. But that doesn't mean we need to carry it, okay? The second thing Paul does is he declares what is true. He declares what is true, so not only does he refute what is false, he declares what is true. Look at verse 14. Everybody with me? Everybody good? I didn't hear a single yes. All right. The live stream people probably were, you know. <laughs> yeah, Terry, where are you at, man? Come on. <laughs> uh, verse 14. But this I confess to you, Paul says, that according to the way, note that, according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Here's what Paul does. Because Tertullus attacked not only who he was, but what he believed, Paul stops to define what it is that he believes in. 
okay? He's not going to accept Tertullus's explanation of what Christianity is, and neither should you, okay? Neither should you. The culture will try to define and tell you what Christianity is. He says, no, that's not it. Let me tell you what Christianity actually is. And this is what Paul does. Paul combats the lie of what Tertullus said Christianity is, a sect of the Nazarenes, by calling it something. He calls it what? The way. The way. It's really interesting to me that that's not what we call Christianity. (laughs) I really don't know why. Christianity was an insult. Did you know that? Christianity was just like calling somebody of the sect of the Nazarene. It was, it was basically an insulting way to say little Christ. Now, Christians adopted that because we're like, yeah, man, we want to be little Christs. That's awesome. But in reality, that was a secular imposed title put on what we now call Christians. What the Christians called themselves was the way. And they did that very strategically. And I just want to spend a minute explaining to you guys how important it is that you understand what the way really is. Because I think a lot of the condemnation we deal with and accusation we deal with comes from a lack of understanding to what the way you are part of is. It's three things. The way, first of all, and you can write these in, living the way Jesus lived. When Paul says that he is part of the way, he's saying, I live my life the way Jesus lived his life. The way is living the way Jesus lived. It's apprenticing him. It's saying, I'm going to model my life after Jesus the person. Paul's confidence is in his rightly chosen apprenticeship, okay, to the perfect human life. Now, your path sometimes doesn't matter as much as who you're following. Sometimes it's less important what path you're on and more important on who you're following, okay? What makes us Christians is that we have chosen to follow in the way of our rabbi. We follow the way of Christ. We live our life according to the way that he lived. That's why Peter said to Jesus when Jesus said, hey, y'all gonna leave? He said something weird like, you're gonna eat my body and drink my blood and a whole bunch of people peeled off and Peter's like, man, we're never gonna get a mega church if you keep saying weird things, right? And so it gets down to just the disciples and Jesus is like, you guys gonna leave too? And what does Peter say? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Okay, we're gonna keep following you. Because what matters is that you're the way and we're gonna follow you in the way that you walk. That's why Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. It's the way, okay? The the, the way means more than that, though. It's not just the way we live, it's also something else, B. It's following the way Jesus made. It's following the way Jesus made. You see the distinction? It's not just living the way Jesus lived, it's also following the way Jesus made. Now, Christianity is not just a practice. It's not just something we do. Christianity is something that we are. The way is someone. The way is a person. For Paul, the way is not a practice, it's a person. It's our union with Christ. John chapter 14, verse five, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, We do not know the way, essentially. We don't know the way. How will we get to you? You're gonna leave and we don't know how to get to you. What are we gonna do when you go? How can we know the way? And Jesus says in response, I am the way. I am the way. See, Jesus wasn't just something we practice. He is something we are part of. Christianity isn't just something we do. It's something we are. And that's what I love about this title, the way. It's the way that Jesus made, and we are entering through him, through union with Christ. Uh, If there's one thing you hear all morning, listen to this. It's not my words, it's Paul's. Romans chapter eight, verse one. There is therefore 
Now no condemnation. Can you memorize this verse, please, this week? And say it to yourself. There is therefore. Now, no. Now, the therefore is telling you everything that Paul said prior to this, which is seven chapters of theology explaining what Jesus did. And because of what Jesus did, chapter 8, the crescendo of the book, there is therefore now no condemnation. In the Greek, do you know what no means? Some. No, it doesn't really mean that. It was a test. There's no condemnation, none, zero, zilch, zippo. I can't think of any more words for the, okay. Zero condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But don't miss that. There is therefore now condemnation, no condemnation for who? Those who are what? In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. In union with him. Because the way is not just something we practice, it's something that we are part of. We are in Christ, therefore there's no condemnation. He condemned sin in the flesh in order, to, uh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Okay, so the way means there is no condemnation. So, you, you know, you might just read this passage and go, Paul says, hey, it's not the sect of the Nazarene, it's the way. And you go, okay, big deal. But what Paul is saying in his affirmation of the way is he's saying, oh, you don't understand what I believe. I, I'm not just following some crazy person from Nazareth who thought he was God. I'm following God himself. It's not by accident that Jesus said, I am the way. That was a a direct claim of deity. I am the way. Jesus takes away our accusation by becoming the accused. He takes away our condemnation by becoming the condemned. And like he said to the woman caught in adultery, go your way. Who is there left to condemn you? Jesus could say that to the woman caught in adultery because he was about to become the woman caught in adultery. He took her place. He took her death, her deserved death. He took, it's not that Jesus just winked at sin. He took her sin. We have to know this. Listen to me. Condemnation is always a failure to believe the gospel. It's always a failure to believe the gospel. You're just failing to believe something. Doesn't make it not true. It means you're just not believing it. It's still true. And the way that we believe the gospel, the way that we dispel condemnation is by declaring the truth of it. There is power that is accessed when you speak the truth of the gospel. It comes. It's the craziest thing. I don't know how many of you guys in this room have ever actually had a moment where you declared the gospel to somebody. Many Christians haven't doesn't necessarily have to be a non-Christian. It could be your spouse. It could be your kids. But when you speak the reality of the gospel, power comes because the Holy Spirit ever lives to glorify Christ. And he comes. Listen to this. This is so good. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Listen, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. We conquer the enemy by the declaration of the gospel. Because Jesus conquered the enemy on the cross, when we speak that truth, we speak victory. We speak victory. 
Do you understand that Satan has no power to harm you? He only has power to lie to you. Why else did Jesus say it is finished on the cross? Was he kidding? Was he wrong? Sometimes it doesn't feel finished, right? But the reality is, is that when you believe lies, when you fail to believe the gospel, it gives the enemy power in your mind. He is the father of lies. It's what he does. And the number one lie he wants you to believe is that you are not Christ's, that you don't belong to him, that you're not forgiven. Because if you believe that, then you're out. Verse 15, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept, and there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. By the way, see on your notes if you want to fill that in. Worshiping God the way he intended. Okay, worshiping God. And I'm not going to get to that because I preached too long on something that was important. Okay, uh, verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. What Paul is saying is, say, you guys think I really care what you think, Felix? He's not being disrespectful, but he's saying my hope is in a God which the, these, uh, these themselves supposedly believe that will resurrect and will judge the just and the unjust. The, the implication is there that, is that when we resurrect, there will be a judgment. And Paul is saying, I don't need to judge myself, Felix. I don't need to judge myself, Sanhedrin, because Christ will judge me. And he will judge me according to the gospel that I've believed. Lastly, so not only is it something that we need to declare, declaring what is true, but number three, confess what is wrong. Okay, so you need to identify what's not true. You need to speak and believe and declare what is true. And then here's the part where you gotta get some work in your heart. And that is you need to confess what is wrong. Okay, verse 16, so Paul says, so I always take pains. Okay, you might underline the word pains. I always take pains to have a clear conscience. You know what takes pains to have a clear conscience? It takes pains toward both God and man. Paul worked hard at having a clear conscience. Okay, and part of relieving yourself from the weight of condemnation, being condemned, is not only believing what is true, refuting what is false, but confessing what is wrong. And Paul had to do that before both God and men. Now, let me explain something theological to you that will help you understand this, okay? We are in a unique moment in history. And I don't just mean 2020. I mean in terms of God's grand redemptive work. We sit in this place where sin, listen to me, sin's penalty has been removed, but sin's presence has not. Does that make sense? I'll say it this way. You have been saved, Christian, speaking of Christians, you have been saved from sin's penalty, you are being saved from sin's power, and you will be saved from sin's presence. We are not yet saved from sin's presence. It's still here. It still plagues us. We are saved from sin's penalty, and God is teaching us how to live with power over our sin's uh, presence. Or, pardon me, sin's, well, I got it all screwed up. You get what I'm saying. You know what I'm trying to talk about. I'll get it right in the next service. Oh, wait, we don't have a next service. Okay. So how do, the question is, how do we have a clear conscience before God and man? Okay. 
We need to pursue the freedom of what is already ours through something called repentance. Now, repentance is a word that Christians have used um, in ways that have been harmful. And so non-Christians and even Christians kind of cringe a little bit with the word repentance. We've heard so many people on street corners screaming that word that it starts to have lost the beauty. Did you know repentance is a grace? It's a grace. It's a grace because it allows you to deal with the toxins that build up in your life. You know what? You know what? Your body was created to deal with toxins. Uh, it sweats them out. And, if you're, and if, you're, if you're healthy, your body is getting rid of them. If you're not healthy, your body holds on to them and make you sick. Repentance is the same kind of thing. As we walk in this world, we carry sin. We do sin. We commit sin. We cause pain. And repentance is the grace, the avenue of us getting rid of that thing. So I'm going to give you guys quickly the ABCs of repentance. Are you ready? The ABCs of repentance. A, B, C, and D. A is the steps. Okay, the steps to repentance. A is you need to admit you're wrong. You need to admit where you're wrong. Paul does that in verse 21. As he's confessing, he says, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. I'm not gonna get into that because we looked at that last week, but needless to say, Paul on trial was willing to confess that he had actually done something wrong. And that was to try to incite a riot or incite an argument between the Sanhedrin. Okay, so he confesses. So the ABCs of repentance, first of all, is you need to admit that you've done something wrong. There's freedom in that, by the way. There's freedom in admitting that you have sin in your life, that you've done sin, that you have struggled. B is not only admit, but B is believe. You need to believe the gospel. Otherwise, you'll never move past A. And you'll be stuck in self-loathing, self-hatred. A is admit, B is believe the gospel. You need to apply the blood, and you will never get to C if you don't go up to B. And C is confession. C is confession. Now, I'm not talking about sitting in a booth with a priest. That's just weird. I don't know why they do that. It's so weird. <laughs> the Bible says confess your sins one to another, not to some dude in a little box. It's probably not very coronavirus friendly anyways, right? Because you're like yelling at it from the back of the room. Um, so, Believe the gospel, confess to the offended party. And the offended party is almost always God first. Almost always God first. And then to the person that you've harmed, to one another. There's freedom in this. Admit you're wrong, believe the gospel, confess, and then D is super important, and that is to decide. You decide to turn from that sin, and you decide to walk in the freedom of the gospel. Now, a lot of people get to C, and they forget D. So they just keep beating themselves up over and over again for something that's already been forgiven, something that's already been dealt with. Now what you're doing here in this process of repentance, you're not creating forgiveness for yourself. Did you know that? Like you're not, it's not like God's like, hey, you better, you better uh, repent um, as a Christian. No, I'm not talking about being an unchristian. I'm talking about being a Christian. You better repent because if you don't, that sin is gonna be held to your account. No, it's all it's all, one camera's fine, guys. It's no big deal. Um, it's all forgiven already. Okay, it's all, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Um, <laughs> Ryan's just so good looking. It's hard not to, it's hard not to look at him. I know, Bree. So, um, anyway, all of your sin is forgiven. It has been accredited to the account. Righteousness has been accredited to your account. So what repentance is, is not purchasing forgiveness. You've already been forgiven. What repentance is, is realizing forgiveness. 
It's enjoying the forgiveness that's already yours. It's eliminating what has come between you and the Lord. And that is the number one thing that should stop us from sin as Christians is that sin keeps me from the Lord. It breaks that connection that I have to the Lord. And so repentance is just an act of breathing it out, breathing out the toxins, releasing the toxins from your life and breathing in the grace of God. And it's a practice, a discipline that we as Christians need to walk in if we want to enjoy the fullness of the freedom of the gospel. Many of us live for years and years and years refusing to believe the gospel in something simply because we chose not to. There was forgiveness there. There was freedom there. Verse 17, Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia. They ought to be here before you and to make an occasion or an accusation should they have anything against me. Or, all, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. In other words, these guys need to come down and actually charge me themselves. Where are my accusers? Where are the guys that actually are saying this happened? Ananias wasn't there. Okay, and then we already looked at verse 21. Now, let's look at the verdict. So Paul makes his case. Now we see the verdict. Verse 22, Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Isn't that interesting? This guy, Felix, he knew about Christianity. Christianity was fairly large at this point, by the way. Been 20 to 30 years since it had started, and uh, Felix was very much aware of it. So he knows what the squabbling is between these guys. So having a a rather accurate knowledge of the way, uh, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune from... uh, the original guy that arrested him, comes down, I will decide your case. In other words, he kicks the can down the road. 23, then he gave order to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Uh, By the way, you didn't get three square meals in a bed in a Roman prison. If your friends didn't come and give you food, you're dead. That's why Paul, in the book of Philippians, he thanks them for being the only ones to come support him because if they hadn't, he would have starved. So after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. Now, Drusilla, the daughter of Herod Agrippa, who was Jewish, um, was a really interesting gal. He sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So him and his wife, they come and they're listening. I mean, you better believe Paul's preaching to this guy, Felix, because that's what Paul did. He preached the gospel. He's preaching to Felix. And verse 25, and as he reasoned about the righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, those were the three topics of conversation, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So Felix, you're starting to see his real character come out. He just wants a bribe. He wants a bribe. And he leaves Paul in prison in Caesarea for two years, hoping that he's going to get a bribe, not really wanting to deal with this, not wanting to make the Sanhedrin mad, not wanting to make anyone mad. He just basically sits around letting Paul sit in prison for two years. He procrastinates. Now here's just my last point. We'll end with this. Okay. My last point is that do not expect to get the verdict that you want or that you need from human, pe- from human judges, including yourself. If you're waiting to experience freedom for that person to forgive you or for yourself to stop feeling, beating yourself up, if you're waiting for that, you're gonna wait a long time. 
If Paul was waiting for justice, if Paul was waiting for justice to happen, he was waiting for Felix to, to let him off the hook, Paul, Paul wasn't waiting for that to experience freedom. We know that when we read the epistles. Paul experienced freedom now because freedom now is a choice to say, I believe the gospel for myself in the midst of my circumstances. Okay, and I just want to end on that because I believe that's a word for somebody in here. Some of you are saying, I can't let go of my condemnation until this happens, until that person forgives me, until that person likes me, until that person speaks well of me, or until I stop feeling guilty or I stop feeling bad. At some point, like Paul, you have to remove yourself from whom human judges and you have to put yourself under the one who truly has forgiven you. And that is a discipline, the discipline of grace. Have you ever thought of grace as a discipline? We know the discipline of prayer, discipline of fasting, discipline of repentance. These are things that you have to do, okay? They're, they take action. I want you to think of grace as a discipline. I want you to get up in the morning and I want you to say, I need to believe grace, and that's a discipline. Because your default setting is to be a legalist. <laughs> your default setting is to make yourself pay for what you've done. Your default setting is to roll through everything in your life and constantly feel like you need to make penance and payment. That's how I know every other religion besides Christianity is man-made because every other religion besides Christianity, you pay for it. The gospel says it's been paid for. But believing that is not natural for you and natural for me. It's not. It's a discipline. It's a discipline. This isn't self-love. You're not forgiving yourself. You're forgiven. Believe it. Walk in it. Walk in the freedom of that. Okay, so I want you to remember those three things. You're feeling accusation. You're feeling condemnation. Stop. Think about what is false. Stop. Declare what is true. Declare what is true. And then I forgot the third one already. What is it? Anybody? This is a, this is a test. Confess what's wrong. That was a test. Yes, I forgot the point I just made for 10 minutes. Welcome to my brain. Father, thank you so much this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Lord, in our lives, God, thank you that we have somewhere to go with our failures. Thank you that the answer to our guilt and our shame and our condemnation is not self-help, is not having people tell us what we want to hear. It's not just self-love. Lord, it's believing that what is wrong with us has been dealt with. And it is looking to the full realization of what has been dealt with. Lord, this new life that we have coming. This morning, God, we just want to end by just praising your name, God. We want to end by just lifting up your name, thanking you for what you've done, thanking you for who you are, thanking you, Father, for your forgiveness. And I just want to pray, Lord, in here that each of these people could experience the freedom of believing the gospel. The discipline of grace, the discipline of repentance would bring freedom this morning, daily, God, as we continue, Lord, to battle the enemy and his lies. Lord, we love you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.